Welcome back to Looking Unto Jesus. Today, we're going to be looking at a um, 17th century author by the name of William Bates. And the book that um, I'm quoting from, if you want to study the gospel, this is a great place uh, to grow in your knowledge of that great work of Christ. It's the harmony of the divine attributes in the contrivance and accomplishment of man's redemption. Um, this book, of course, has been recommended by Archibald Alexander and old writer himself, Dr. Uh, Robert Martin, uh, Joel Beakey. Uh, Dr. Beakey wrote the foreword, actually. And um, this is one of those monumental books uh, in my life. Um, you might think that the the title is somewhat unusual, the harmony of the divine attributes, basically in the work of Christ. But that's what makes it so powerful. What he's writing about is the very core of the gospel. The question that Paul brings up in Romans three, how can God be just and yet justify the wicked? That is the great theological dilemma of the ages. And the answer is found, the divine answer, in the cross of Christ. Did God display his justice like never before? Through the crushing of his own son. Can now God show mercy? Yes. How? His son has paid the demands of divine justice so that God might now be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what this book is about. You see, when, when theologians tell you that the, the cross is the greatest revelation of the character of the attributes of God, um, you're not going to get all the marrow of what they're saying unless you realize that prior to the cross, there was something of a problem. How does God grant forgiveness to wicked men and do so justly because the blood of bulls and goats simply cannot accomplish such a thing? It is through the blood of his own son. Now, William Bates is going to tell us about the greatness of the gospel. And so let's read it. The apostle tells us that the mystery of our redemption contains all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, 3. To signify their excellence and abundance, the unsearchable riches of grace are laid up in it. There is infinite variety and perpetual matter for the inquiry of the most excellent understanding. No created reason is able to reach its height or sound its depth. By the continual study and increase in the knowledge of it, the mind enjoys a persevering pleasure that far exceeds the short pleasure, pleasures of sensual delights. Let's pray. Father, again, I pray for myself, for the body of Christ, for those who are watching this video, that we would know more of Christ and in knowing more, that our love would be drawn out, Lord, our affections would be drawn out to him by his virtue, by what he has done. Oh, dear God, I pray especially for the preachers 
for the men of God of this age. That they would lay aside the trivial and preach Christ. Preach him deeply and passionately. For Christ's namesake. Amen. Well, let's look at William Bates. The apostle tells us that the mystery of our redemption contains all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge to signify their excellence and abundance. Now, the wisdom of God is seen, of course, in the creation of the universe. I mean, we can't even come close to understanding really the smallest cell. And yet God created the universe and not only creates it, he sustains it. So there is wisdom there beyond the comprehension of men and of angels. And then when we look at the perseverance or the preservation rather of the world, that by his word, he not only created, but by his word of wisdom, he upholds everything, stars, galaxy, the entire universe, beings both material and spiritual. There's great wisdom in that. But the Bible teaches us, and we must take it by faith, that in a sense, all of that is child's play compared to the wisdom of God that is revealed in the cross of Christ. You know, I have known apologists in this world who gave a great deal of their attention to creation. And some of them, it began and ended with creation. But the great apologist defended creation, talked about the glories and the wisdom of God in creation, only because they realized they were defending something far greater, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter what subject you undertake in your ministry whether you're an apologist, whether you're an expositor, you must realize this. Everything you do must find its purpose in Christ. Everything must point to Christ because in him is revealed the infinite, ongoing, marvelous wisdom of God, even above the universe. Now he goes on and he says, it is that which occupies incessantly the heavenly hosts. In our last uh, segment, did not Charles Spurge, uh, did not uh, Charles Simeon say the same thing? That in the mind of angels there is the gospel, and then we added, in the mind of God there is the gospel, the thing that most occupies them. You know, it, it doesn't say that angels. Uh, lean forward in order to get a glance, a greater look at creation. But it does say that they lean forward to get a better look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, because there is where God is revealed. There is where infinite wisdom breaks forth like a flood. Let's go on. There is infinite variety and perpetual matter for the inquiry of the most excellent understanding. No created reason is able to reach its height or sound 
its depth. Now, again, no created reason is able to reach its height or sound its depth. When he says created reason, he's referring to to everything outside of God. Whether it be the most uneducated man or it be the the greatest archangel or principality and power in heaven. That that the knowledge, the wisdom of God that is revealed in the gospel. We can't comprehend it all. We can know enough to be saved. We can know enough to be transformed by it. But when we get to heaven, someone asks me, I often get asked this question, especially by young children. When we get to heaven, will we know everything? Well, we'll know a lot, but we won't know everything because especially we won't know everything about the primary theme because the primary theme in heaven is is an infinite glory, is an infinite wonder, is infinite wisdom. It is the revelation of God in the person and work of Christ. And so it is something that that we will be able to chase for eternity. And at the end of a thousand eternities, there'll be just as much left to chase. Isn't that marvelous? So sometimes I hear this from people. Oh, he's going to preach on the gospel. We know that. That betrays a great ignorance of scripture. And a lack of cultivating the mind of God through the reading of the scriptures. A child can know enough of the gospel to be saved. But the greatest theologian who spends 120 years of his life simply contemplating John 3.16 will not exhaust the glory that is found in that passage. And that's, that's the bane, the burden of the preacher, but it's also his joy. Our primary job is not to be movers and shakers and strategists and administrators or politicians. Our primary job is to be alone, searching out the riches of Christ in order to bring them to God's people. My dear brother, if you only spend a few hours a week in your study, rapidly preparing something to say. You have betrayed your calling. And whether you say it's because you personally don't like to study or even if you say so many other activities are drawing you away, I want you to know your calling is so high, there's no excuse. You are called to set before God's people. An infinite glory. It's going to take a while, so you better get started. He goes on and he says this. By the continual study and increase in the knowledge of it, the mind enjoys a persevering pleasure. This is what I love about the old men and the old books. Continual study and increase in the knowledge of it. We don't study. You know, so often study gets a bad rap sort of from from people, doesn't it? The idea of doctrine and theology. We also always hear this thing like I, I don't want doctrine. I just want God. I don't want theology. I just want Christ. That's nonsensical. It's absurd to say things like that. We study not just 
in the word, not just with the languages. We study and we study and we study, but we also pray and pray and pray. Why? We're on a journey. We're seeking to know more of him, but not just for ourselves. It's for God's people. How many mechanics and carpenters and housewives would love to have the calling and time simply to search out Christ? These very people are sitting in our congregations. And they need a man before them who studies Christ and makes Christ known to them. He says, by the continual study and increase in the knowledge of it, the mind enjoys a persevering pleasure that far exceeds the short pleasures of sensual delights. I was raised on a, a, a farm in Illinois. The town, we didn't live in town, we lived out on a farm. The town only had a thousand people, and I'm not sure it really measured up to that. Um, needless to say, most of the boys I ran with, we were farmers and ranchers and spent most of our time hunting and fishing, and uh, we weren't the most cultured <laughs> group of young people. And I remember one time that, uh, I think it was in the ninth grade, we were told that we were going to study art appreciation. We didn't even have a clue what that was. But we found out that um, you have to learn to appreciate art. It may not come naturally. When you begin to know the story behind the painting, or behind the man or woman who painted it, when you begin to look at colors and schemes and even materials that were used, what happens? You grow in your appreciation. You have to cultivate uh, the ability to appreciate art. It's the same way with food. Most of us were raised eating uh, deer and catfish. Um, the delicacies of France weren't really near us. And but over time, you begin to see um, the beauty of food, um, the skill behind preparing it, the different, as I've traveled around the world, the different flavors, and you begin to appreciate it. You, you discipline yourself to appreciate, I suppose, the finer things. The same thing must happen in our churches. Why are we content, to, it seems, to eat at a sloppy buffet of food that's no good for us? It's because maybe we haven't cultivated uh, an appreciation for that which is good. And oftentimes, believers who have not cultivated such an appreciation, oftentimes it's because they're in churches where it's noticeable the preacher hasn't. The preacher hasn't. Um, we can talk about, I guess, we could talk about politics and all sorts of things and, and put the blame on so many people with regard to why the world is the way it is, but at least with regard to the church. The church is weak where the evangelists, pastors, and teachers are weak. The church is willing to eat 
the fodder of a buffet, a sloppy, unhealthy buffet, because oftentimes that's what Christ's ministers are willing to give them because it's what they're willing to eat because they have not cultivated an appreciation of the gospel. Oh, dear brothers, this comes at a cost. It comes at a cost of pulling yourself away, of reading the book from Genesis to Revelation over and over and over again, stopping when we see Christ and investigating, turning aside. If, you know, if Moses could turn aside, there's a burning bush. I, I would turn aside. But what is a burning bush? Compared to the crucified and resurrected Christ. They both have their place. But men, we need to turn aside and we need to learn to cultivate appreciation for the gospel. And one of the ways that we can do that is, of course, I have to end this way, uh, by reading old, old books. <laughs>